The names Opal Towers and Mascot Towers can send a chill down any apartment owner's spine. The New South Wales government responded by appointing a building commissioner to sort out the mess. Today, we want to understand the significance of the reforms in the residential apartment space. What has changed that will give consumers more confidence in build quality? How are the key players, you know, the developers, the builders, the certifiers, etc., how are they being made accountable? And what's the lag time in which apartment buyers could still be caught out? These people who contribute most to the problems we have are what I call occasional players. They come and go at will. They leave their little shattered mess behind them. Their addresses are essentially at accountants and lawyers' office. They don't have a visible branded presence in the marketplace. They just hang around in what I call a very opaque space. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as down Download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au Today we're pleased to welcome David Chandler, OAM, the New South Wales Building Commissioner. David got the gig in 2019 after an impressive 40-year career in the Australian construction industry. Now, I don't normally read the complete bios of our guests, but today is a little different as he has such a big job with significant powers that I think it's important for us to understand why he's qualified for the role. David delivered major infrastructure and urban renewal projects, including the new Parliament House in Canberra, not so new now, I guess, and Sydney's key apartments, and as adjunct professor in the School of Computing, Engineering and Mathematics at Western Sydney University, David's helped shape the next generation of construction professionals and founded the Centre for Smart Modern Construction, which invests in new academic and research capabilities for the construction sector, and David was awarded the Order of Australia Medal in 1989 for his services to the construction industry. So we are really thrilled that you've joined us today, David. Thank you. It's been a long time coming as I've been trying to squeeze a spot in your diary for nearly two years now. Thank you, Veronica. It's good to finally connect. Thanks, David. I I just want to kind of start on um, the big role that you've been employed to do as New South Wales Building Commissioner. Why were you sort of the first uh, inaugural person to to take on that role and what's your responsibility and what are you trying to achieve? Uh, Well, first of all, it was an interesting appointment because I didn't apply. I understand that there were some 22 candidates (laughs) and uh, they were passed over and I got a tap on the shoulder on a Friday and I think I consented to take the role up on the following Wednesday. So it was all pretty quick. Yeah, But uh, look, the role is very significant and uh, this is very different to what's happening in any of the other states in Australia. Mm. The New South Wales government has decided and that it's time to get a reset of this industry. So it's not just about what you've named as mascot towers and opal towers. Of course, they're the big signature profile challenges. The, the challenges are much more systemic and widespread. So look, my role has got three essential parts to it. The first is that I'm unashamedly the advocate for consumers in this process. So Mm. through all of the things that I do at the front of every decision and action that I take is, is this good for consumers? So that's first and foremost, my role is to be their advocate. 
The second role is to bring my subject matter knowledge to the process of discussing policy, helping to shape uh, legislation, and then more importantly, uh, getting involved in standing up that legislation in a way that it can be enduring and effective. So that's the second role. The third role is one of leading transformation. And transformation has two elements to it. Mm. Uh, Transforming the regulator, because all regulators are burdened with their past. And what we've needed to do on this occasion is to take this one-time reset opportunity to actually modernise the regulator and to get it to focus on those things that are going to be about its future and not those things about its past. So while we reshape or transform the regulator, then what we need to do is to lead an engaging narrative with the industry to say, what is the industry that you want to have in a few years from now look like and how do we get there? So that's really been the body of the work that we've undertaken to date. So it was a lot of it about the way forward and not so much focusing on the the wrongdoings of the past or fixing what's happened in the past, or are you solely focused on let's just reset, let's get everything sorted so we don't create the issues that we've seen you know, over the you know, last few decades? Uh, Chris, quite the contrary. Um, my task is both to look at the legacy issues as well as the forward-facing issues, but one needs to separate them because you can't really deal with one in the same way as the other. So mm. setting a positive agenda requires a positively facing outlook as to what you're going to do about changing the game from here on. And that's starting to play out straight away. But then we have legacy issues. Now, it's just simply not possible to reach back into the past and rewrite history. But one of the things that I am doing is that in terms of bringing people into what I call the tent of the future, Mm. um, I'm making sure that they're unable to do that without engaging with their past. So a number of developers who want to be part of the future and who want to start to enjoy a better brand than perhaps they've had in the past have had to face up to the fact that to get inside that tent, they need to acknowledge their legacy projects and to demonstrate to me how they're going to go back and, and clean some of them up. <laughs> now, it's not going to be possible to do that everywhere, but where there's an opportunity to do it, I will certainly be leveraging my powers to make sure that I can go back where I can to deal with those issues. It's interesting you say that because one of the questions that's formed in my mind every time I hear of one of the sort of initiatives that you're rolling out or the changes that that you're presiding over is, well, what about the people caught in the middle? What about the people who currently own property that won't be fixed because of, you know, it's not going to be built in the future. It's already built and it's it's a problem. It's one of these problems, one of these buildings with a problem. How do, are they sort of caught in the middle? I mean, do they are they supported? And and if they're lucky enough to have had a developer or builder that's prepared to go back, that's great. But what about anyone who doesn't? Well, the first and pressing issue there is uh, to look at the remediation of cladding mm. on the outside of buildings, residential apartment buildings in New South Wales. And as you're aware, the government has uh, just announced and they've given me the charge of what's now called Project Remediate, which is to go back and work across some 220 buildings that need to have flammable cladding replaced on them. And the government's funding that or supporting that exercise through 10-year interest-free loans. And in addition, the government is paying for the entire cost of the overlay of management to deliver that remediation work. So those property owners of some 220 
residential or properties affected by this will get some support to work through that experience. So again, it's unfortunate that owners have been subjected to buildings that have got these sorts of issues. Mm. Look, there's no simple answer, but I can certainly make it clear to everybody that the people who've left these projects behind are largely repeat players. So while they might phoenix Mm. a project or a business in one place, they pop up in another. To the extent that I can, I'm making sure that we try and address some of the sins of the past. But it's important for property owners to realise that, you know, it's time to get those things fixed. It may be that they have to face into them and fund that fixing. But if they want their properties to be on a positive value trajectory going forward, then it's time to get these things fixed. So um, it's unfortunately, we've got issues, but we do need to work together to see what we can do to reinstate the quality and then the value of these properties. So it's quite a pragmatic approach then. What about the sort of the lag time between buildings that are sort of just been finished or still in the process of being finished and are yet to come under the umbrella of future processes, right? So there was a quite a high publicised um, story a few weeks back, actually, probably a month or so back, about uh, Mariam Beirouz. You're probably aware of that, you know, out at Kellyville, and she she was a bit of an unusual um, situation because she, she herself, I think, is an engineer, and she went and took an architect through a pre-settlement inspection on a brand new property that she put off the plan and uncovered all these issues that then the council concurred with. Then she was faced with a situation of having to settle on a property that she knew had significant defects and she's sort of, you know, more educated than most buyers, I guess, in, in understanding the potential consequences of that for her personally. And I don't even know what her ultimate decision was, but she's a really good example of someone who's sort of caught in the crossfire, if you like. She's in a system where there's obviously change, but she's bought a property that was under construction before those changes uh, coming into play. How does that work? Well, look, I don't want to talk about that um, particular matter specifically because um, there's ongoing uh, reviews of the yeah. circumstances around that. So mm. I'm not going to speak to that particular mm-hmm. yeah. matter. In a general sense, though. But I will say that I am concerned about purchases being confronted with projects where they get an occupation certificate. Yeah. And then you're facing into an unavoidable need to settle. Yeah. So if you track back what I've been doing since I started, then what I'm trying to do is to make sure that my priority is to look at that critical transaction where a depositor turns into an owner. Mm. And so if you look at the RAB Act, the Residential Apartment Buildings Compliance and Enforcement Powers Act that was uh, brought in June last year, Uh, That was only about eight months after I took on the role as building commissioner. So to identify and and make the case for some new legislation to be quickly brought into the parliament and approved, and my powers stood up on the 1st of September last year in the terms of the RAB Act, as it's called, Mm. uh, that was a pretty powerful sign by the the government that they're serious and that they were minded to give me the powers to actually do some work early in that space. Yeah. So we have been standing up the Occupation Certificate Audit Program immediately following the start of that legislation or those powers in my hands. So we've been starting about six Occupation Certificate Audits since the 1st of September each month. 
by the end of next year, we'll have done 200 of those. Now, I know that that is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of making sure that we're having a look at all of these occupation certificates. But, mm. you know, the early work that we've done, uh, we have issued a, a range of uh, building works rectification orders. We've issued prohibition orders. My powers allow me to form a view as to whether a project should proceed to an occupation certificate or not. Now, just simply having that power and having demonstrated my intent to use those powers has had an enormous and short-term impact across the industry. Mm. I don't think there's a single developer out there that is not conscious of the fact that these powers are significant and they're real. In addition to that, we've got the Building and Developers Certifiers Act, which actually sharpens the responsibilities of certifiers. Now, you may have seen that the minister announced yesterday that we have commenced a further series of audits, which is going to crack down on what we call the risky certifiers. <laughs> so while we've been building capability in the new regulator, part of that is a digital capability where we can see a correlation between risky players, developers, builders, certifiers, and others who, when you add them together, point to risk. We have identified that in New South Wales, some six certifiers are present on approximately 30% of the projects that have yet to achieve an occupation certificate. Mm. Following the Minister's announcement yesterday, uh, we have now commenced an audit of those entire six certifiers and the projects that they're currently certifying on. I can assure you that the ramifications of that are very significant. I don't believe that there are very many certifiers left in New South Wales who are prepared now to just simply issue an occupation certificate on a tick-the-box basis because they know there will be consequences. So we've had to deal with a couple slides through since the legislation have started, and no doubt we'll have to deal with some more that slide through. But I can assure consumers that we're on the case and we're out there making a huge difference. It's certainly encouraging what you're saying there. And I've observed, obviously, this, and we've, we've interviewed a number of people over the years uh, on this issue, but private certifiers obviously got a lot of flack and, and there's a big focus on them, but were they scapegoated? Uh, look, to a degree, I think they were because, by and large, I think most of the private certifier cohort are very trustworthy players um, and also point out that uh, the, the certifier on Mascot Towers was the former uh, Botany Council, so that was, <laughs> that was in fact, a... Um, an, a, a public certifier. So um, I, mm. I just think that anyone who's in that space who's still holding out a candle for a return of the past is um, is possibly living in a glass house. But look, I think certifiers did get a bad lot, and and that is why the Design and Building Practitioners Act is resetting that landscape. So while we've got these short-term initiatives around the RAB Act, it's the design and Building Practitioners Act that is really going to change the game mm. because what, what that legislation requires is that from the 1st of July this year, new projects will require declared designs prepared by uh, accredited people to do those designs and those designs will have to be completed before construction starts. So <laughs> those designs will have to be lodged on the New South Wales e-planning portal at least one day before the work starts where those designs will be deployed. 
David, really- this is this, this is actually really interesting because I I don't think most people realise. You know, if you if you had your house built, for instance, you know, you got to get your plans approved to council, then you go and get a construction certificate. That's got all the documentation and da 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 da, and then and then before works can commence. Whereas in you know large scale construction, there's a thing called design and construct. Is that you saw what you talk? Uh, yeah, design and construct. Is that what you're talking about here? Where basically they they design as they build, and and so are you basically saying that this is to be designed before you build now? Correct. And we must make sure that we acknowledge the fact that the procurement model called design and construct is a very legitimate model. It's just that mm. in the wrong hands, it can be um, harmful. Mm. Yeah. So we're very focused on making sure that uh, only qualified players can actually play in that space going forward. So <laughs> yes, it's terribly important that we actually have the design. It's it's arguable, in fact, that in the past, you may have even had a situation where you had construct and design. And I've seen examples of that where people have constructed poorly and then managed to get a designer to draw a drawing that reflects their poor construction. So that's oh over. God. That's over. <laughs> Thank God <Yeah>. for that. <laughs> just on that design stage, I mean, when you sort of drive around, you look at, say, a lot of these buildings, they age really fast, potentially they haven't been, uh, you know, designed the best way for an aesthetic or even just the uh, climate, lots of different reasons. Do you think that one of the big issues is that no one's really getting involved in a lot of detail and a regulation around what they're building and making sure that it actually is you know, great for society? My, my remit's not to become the planning minister, so there's quite a separation between mm. the department planning and, and, and the regulator. So, But what I can see is this, is that where developers have actually gone and nickel and dime the design process before they do the construction, yeah. it's quite often that they'll end up with um, a poor outcome from a urban context and, and, and a building that contributes meaningfully to its place. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I'm, uh, you may have seen on my blog site recently where I showed a building that in fact had started its construction where they had the engineering drawings and they'd obviously got going and they had the architectural drawings in the background, but someone had forgotten to appoint the hydraulics consultant. And by the time they got to the fourth floor, they suddenly realized they better put some pipes in the building. <laughs> Oh, and, and 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 you'll see this. It's an exhibit on my website. But um, this building has got all its pipes stuck on its outside. It looks as though it's got its guts outside the building. Yeah. And it's an absolutely disgusting example of a developer just uh, having gone about a building in the wrong way. So I'm calling out those buildings that don't make a, a an appropriate contribution to their place, where they're just simply out of place. And 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 frankly, I'm not going to try and make a judgment of beauty, but I'm certainly going to make a judgment about the fact that uh, if a building's exhibiting its its poor planning and poor design and poor construction, mm. then that's going to get called out. I think a good example of that is that now with the Design and Building Practitioners Act, we're going to require, for example, accredited fire engineers to be part of the declared design process. Now, one of the things that irks me as I drive around Sydney is the way that fire hydrant pumps are actually installed in front of buildings. I mean, Mm. we are going to end up with a a city full of basically buildings that express their pumping station on their outside. (laughs) And I think this is a good opportunity for designers to really think through how can we organise this in a way that's really not as offensive as what we're seeing. Yeah. Isn't that all about visibility, though? (laughs) Sorry, I'm being a bit flippant there. No. I've been listening to some of your interviews and some of your commentary and you draw a distinction between, the, you know, in your use of the word build quality versus trust. 
And I think if I'm if I'm getting it right, you sort of look at quality as, as sort of looking at those additional aesthetic or finish aspects of a property as opposed to trust being the integrity of the building. And so that sort of leads into my question, which is, do you think that housing affordability has been a used as a convenient excuse for poor build quality? So you've got buildings that probably have more of the shiny stuff on them, but less of the actual trust element. Yeah, look, I think that's right. Um, there, there were people when I was first appointed to say that the effect of my presence in the market will be to drive up the cost of construction. But let me get rid of that myth first. And that is that all of the people who are building what I call trustworthy buildings, these are people that are what I call the reliable repeat performers out there, and uh, I won't name them in this interview, but yep. they tell me that my presence won't drive up their cost of construction one penny. Mm. So what we're identifying is those people who actually rape and pillage around the edges and what and do what I call cost shift, and that is they cut corners during the process of construction and shift it to owners in the life of the building. And a good example yeah. of that is a recent one where we had to have a, quite a number of bathroom pods pulled out in a project. In fact, it was over 300 bathrooms that were pulled out and rebuilt on this particular project. Mm. Yeah. And my estimate is that, that they might have saved about $1,500 per bathroom by cutting corners. My estimate is that they spent $15,000 per bathroom fixing them up. Mm. And my further estimate is that it would have cost a consumer down the track about $35,000 to repair one of those bathrooms if they failed in service. So mm. for a $1,500 nickel and dime cut corner, the consequences are significant. Yes. Well, we see this time and time again. I mean, I've been property now over 20 years and, and in that time, I've, the amount of buildings I know that have had to have all the all bathrooms re-waterproofed and, and balconies and, and any waterproofing in particular just seems to be such a common theme. And, you know, depending on how long it's survived before it all started to fail, you know, as to whether they can actually try to get recourse from the build or the developer or whether they're actually got to front it up, you know, and stump it up and pay for themselves. So it's a common thing, but like you say, it's just kicking the can down the road so that the the consumer pays for it potentially. And even if they don't pay for it or they only pay for part of it, the disruption and stress and everything that's caused as a, as a consequence is just hideous. But I suspect the big developers aren't really the problem. I mean, how do you tackle a complex industry with so many small players? I think I'm benefited by being a subject matter expert, as you probably announced at the start. And uh, mm. I always take a view that if uh, you want a great gamekeeper, you go and actually get a poacher to be your, come your gamekeeper. So, um, <laughs> so I like to bring that sort of insight to the table. So you're quite correct in all of the comments you say. And, and, and frankly, some of the experiences of customers out there are absolutely appalling. But let me just put some statistical data for, in front of you so that you've got that and I can then answer your question specifically. Mm -hmm. We've just completed a survey of strata buildings that have been built in the last six years. And we've, as of last night, we've got 400 and nearly 500, uh, 498, I think it is, uh, completed surveys. Now, that's the deepest and most substantial research project that's ever been done using data, not interviews. So so this is data-driven. Now, the, the result of that survey indicates that about 34% of buildings have serious defects in what we call the common property. Now, really? these are the things that most 
impact a building's functionality. So they include the structure, they include the waterproofing, all the fireproofing systems, they include the enclosure or the outside skin of the building, and finally they include the key building services. Now, Mm. they're the things that are required to have declared designs in the Design and Building Practitioners Act. Right. So 34% of buildings have what we would call serious defects in their in the common property. And I can tell you that of that 34%, 78% of that 34% has, has waterproofing defects of some kind. It's either in the basement, yeah. the bathroom, the planter box, or the roof. So hmm. we now know that the most pressing element still is waterproofing. So yep. that's a very primary focus of the work that we're doing. The second piece is that about 50% of that 34% have issues to do with fire systems, passive inactive, and about 48% of those, that 34% have issues to do with the structure. So cracking or some other form of structural impediment that needs attention. So we now have a very clear evidence-based insight into what we're doing. Now, your question is, it's potentially the repeat branded good players that are not the problem here and you are 100% there. So how do we tackle the people that don't care about their brand and currently they come and go from the industry undetected? Mm. Well, I can tell you now that we have risk tools that can find and point out these people. So I'm currently looking into some capability and we're applying it as we speak that draws on about 170 million lines of data sources. <laughs> wow. And what we found is that these these people who contribute most to the problems we have are what I call occasional players. They come and go at will. They leave their little shattered mess behind them. Their addresses are essentially at accountants and lawyers' office. They don't have a visible branded presence in the marketplace. They just hang around in what I call a very opaque space. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're landing on them. They're, they're our next high priority. And and from here on, we will be chasing people who don't have an interest in a, in a repeat player brand. They're the people that will get most of our attention in the coming year. And was there a lot of the issues, for example, not Australian brands that, you know, for example, foreign investment sort of brands coming into Australia? Was that a big part of the problem rather than or do you think it was just sort of mixed across the whole board? Look, um, I don't think that it is just simply about foreign entities coming in and and foreign players because we've got some very, very good players who operate and are very committed to making sure that their presence in the market is a positive one. I think we probably got a substantial number of local players who, for whatever reason, see opportunities to come in, throw something up and get out and then disappear and then come back again. Mm-hmm. I think there's more of a, of the local cohort in that group than there is in the overseas cohort. I'm not saying that there isn't an overseas element to this, but by and large, it'll be local players yeah. who are opportunistic to get in and get out and not show much care about what they do. Because that is the problem really on the legal side, isn't it, with the ability to so easily phoenix. And in fact, you know, i Oh, who was I listening to? I can't remember, but it might have been in relation to Dr. Nicole Johnson's work 
we did an interview with her some time ago um, around her research into defects and there were lawyers that uh, she'd interviewed, uh, I'm fairly certain it was her report, that she'd interviewed these lawyers were basically saying, well, you know, we of course it's good practice to recommend to our developer clients that they phoenix, you know, because it's there's opportunity within the law to do that. Mm. And so that that becomes a real problem too also for new purchasers. I mean, obviously you've got to deal with it in one way, but for any purchaser who wants to research the track record of a developer or builder, you know, with that sort of practice, it's really difficult to do, isn't it? So I'll give you some advice about research in a second for purchasers and what's, Great. How, they, how they can make some informed decisions. But mm. let me make this point very clear. There are defect shopping lawyers and consultants out there who want to make the problem bigger than it should be. And I'm, I've got a number of case studies at the moment that I'm working on. Again, I can't call them out, but I've got a situation where a builder rang me and said, look, David, we're just taking such a pummeling from this lawyer who's driving an out of control bus where he's got a, a bunch of claims that really are not material. We have offered to go back and fix the building and to fix all of the things that are material. But what they're doing is making sure that they put the minutia in with the substance stuff mm. and make a bigger story out of it so that they can drive a litigation. Yeah. Now, I've got some lawyers where I've basically got them in the room and I said, okay, you're driving this litigation bus at full throttle now and can you tell me what winning looks like? <laughs> what will the owners get when you, if you win? And they, they said to me, well, we'll get a pile of cash, we'll take our bit and they'll get the bit that's left over. <laughs> now, you know, to me, that's, that's not moral. And there are some lawyers out there who play that game mm. and they do it unconscionably, but they do hide. They're like a wolf in sheep's clothing, some of them. And I'll be calling some of these players out because I think their performance in the market has been unconscionable. But I'm going to say, that for those that do the right thing and represent their clients well, historically, the regulator has let them down. People have made representations to the regulator about some of these defects, and frankly, they've been pushed away, and, and that that's changing as well. So we want to drive a situation where the public are confident to approach the regulator for serious defects in the common property on multi-unit buildings. So we've set up a special desk so that they can be reported into, as long as the person who's reporting is an authorised member of the owners corporation and that they actually are bringing defect matters that are what we call those five key elements in the common property. We're now setting that up so that in fact we don't push those things away and we're looking to double the number of matters that we can actually take on in the next year. So I want consumers to really test out that process going forward because while lawyers have got a very important part to play, particularly in the ticking clock where the rights of consumers might lapse if they don't take some action, and I encourage owners' corporations to make sure that they do take advice in that ticking clock space, but make sure that the regulator now is challenged to say, okay, Come and have a look at this and see what we can do about it. 
If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. I think that's interesting that you talk about, you know, the research that you've done into the last six years, 498 completed surveys showing basically a third have serious defects because that's one thing that that even in Nicole's research paper, you know, she says it's the, the definition of a defect, you know, really it, it can range from a cracked tile right up to, you know, serious structural issues and so therefore trying to work out what's serious versus what isn't is very important. It's separating what I call the colours from the whites. Um, yeah. <laughs> And so if you're, if you're putting them in a washing machine together, you make a big story and you can say that 80% of buildings have defects. And Nicole's quite correct in that broad statement. Yeah, exactly. Unfortunately, you need much more granularity in what you're looking at. So that's why I commissioned this piece of work. And uh, I now have a very solid evidence base that while 70 or 80% of buildings may have defects, I can now tell you that 34% of them have defects in their common property in those key building elements of structure, waterproofing, envelope, fire systems, and uh, key building services. So we now know what the scale of the challenge is and we know exactly what the issues are and that's what we're focusing on. Which is still obviously significant when you've got a third. Um, Absolutely. I don't deny that. And our goal is to drive that down. And we're setting ourselves the goal of actually measuring how we drive that down. And one of the ways of doing that is to is to ramp up the number of people who report these matters in the first instance Mm. to the Office of Fair Trading. But Mm. the second thing is that we then drive down the number of matters that are before the court. So we're building now a a set of um, deliverables around the fact of, well, what's, what's, what's the current number of activities that are in the courts related to these matters? And how can we set our goals to reduce that by 25%, by 50%, by becoming more proactive as we go forward? I mean, that's one of the irony of uh, buying in a building that potentially has defect issues is you don't want those defect issues to get out in the public because then the value of that building, you know, gets discounted because other buyers will know about those big issues. And is there a way to sort of protect the consumer a little bit about coming forward and, and trying to protect their own little nest egg, which is their own home and the property value? Is that issue sort of getting looked at where the remediation can be you know, actually more likely to be done and more likely to have a, uh, you know, a strict timeline on it? Or is it, uh, is that an issue that, you know, is always constantly going to be there? Look, I'm relatively unsympathetic about putting uh, these issues out of sight. I think they're far better dealt with in the plain light of day. I know that's distressing for some property owners to to hear that, but the, the reality is there's a duty of care of the people who are currently owning a building and then selling it to a subsequent purchaser. Yeah. So I think there's a genuine duty of care that if you're aware of issues, then you have to make them visible. Mm. Um, I think sweeping them under the carpet and just pretending that they're not there so you can get out and somebody else is locked into what you knew was a problem is just simply not the way to turn the market round. I think that those people that have got these sorts of issues in their buildings need to face into the fact that the sooner they address them, the better. And 
that's one of the things that drove the government's response to the the cladding remediation program is that yes, those buildings will be visible for a while and then they'll be fixed. But you know, property prices are going up and and the value of these assets are going up, and so they might suffer a very short term dip in their immediate market value, but they'll be back on the on the value creation trajectory the moment that they're fixed up. So I think I would encourage, well, I do encourage owners to actually go the opposite direction. Call out your defects, get on and get them attended to, and then get back into the certainty of your value being assured as opposed to just simply hoping that one day no one will find your problem and suddenly the value falls away from under your asset. It's certainly something that, you know, when I read strata reports and, you know, if I find that there's lots of detail as to, you know, building issues, then I'm much more comforted that they're on top of it rather than one that's very vague. But then again, I do read hundreds of strata reports. I think that there's obviously this sort of ongoing problem with people that are in the buildings and having to deal with this, but they're, then they're trying to work out, well, who should pay for it, et cetera, et cetera. So I guess that the project remediate is obviously a step in the right direction to actually give them assistance. And so and I can see why that you've targeted uh, the flammable cladding as a uh, number one issue, certainly top priority there. We've been talking a lot about apartments though. We've not been talking about house and land packages. And of course, you know, there's this perception amongst all buyers, really, I think, that they they get a homeowner's warranty protection. And I talk to a lot of first home buyers, and they're, they're absolutely shocked when they, I say to them, if you buy into a you know an apartment building that is more than three stories high, you don't have homeowner's warranty insurance. I'm like, you're kidding me. And then, of course, there's been the recently introduced 2% levy for developers. But even with house and land packages where the single level or double level dwelling, they are going to get that warranty. It isn't really enough of a protection because of course the builder or developer has got to go bust or have disappeared in order to be able to claim on it. And even then you don't always get your money. But what sort of extent of problem is there in that space? Well, first of all, let me preface these comments by the fact that now these are my opinions and therefore not policy because all of these things need to go through a proper process where policy is shaped around um, a set of alternative outcomes, but I mean, I'm not going to be anyone that's holding a candle up for the last resort homeowner warranty insurance scheme mm. um, because everybody, I think, in the industry feels that consumers could do deserve a better outcome than that. So uh, I'm more about now focusing on how to rate the players and what sort of riskiness the players have got so that you can actually put that at the front of the transaction not down the back. So I think we've been probably, we've had our eye off the risk management ball for too long. So I think we need to start to turn our mind to how do we start to focus on that? It's it's no good just simply extending the scope of insurance at the moment, the homeowner warranty insurance uh, scheme that applies to what's class one buildings, that's uh, single, de- single detached and detached dwellings. Is, is running at a significant loss to the state because all of the insurers have essentially left that market. So the government has now been left as being yep. the last resort insurer in that space. Now, mm. basically, taxpayers shouldn't be left with the burden of cleaning up after an industry. So I think we need to have no. far more proactive uh, intervention to mm. actually lower that exposure. So, um, look, I think that's to follow um, the message that um, – my colleagues and the people that I take advice from as I do this job 
and I can assure you that it's uh, it's the hardest I've worked in my career, is that uh, the advice is, David, you can't boil the ocean. Why don't you focus on the things that you can uh, make a, a material and short-term difference on, and it's got to be class two buildings because as we end up with more denser community development, then these buildings are going to be um, the most significant dwelling type as we move forward. We all know that you know, the, the expanding the green edges of cities is now really right up against yeah. its buffer. And um, so we need to focus on making sure that we're building and delivering a far better quality of multi-unit development than we've ever done in the past. So on that sort of note, do you feel that when you drive around, say, the Sydney and Melbourne, that we've missed an opportunity because we've only got limited land even in around the city where we can build towers unless we want to go into our NIMBY backyards. Do do you sort of see these buildings and think that we've missed a big opportunity and we're wasted, you know, precious land, I guess? Or do you see that, you know, we've still got enough land and we've still got enough opportunity to sort of forget about those areas, but we can start to build great new suburbs and um, new buildings in these areas? Well, Chris, you're sort of, you know, attempting me to wander off my remit, which is um, (laughs) to be a better regulator. But um, let me tell you that I've spent the greater part of the last 20 years being very focused on the very conversation that you've just started. Let me say that the brownfields land that exists in the city areas or in the inside the greenfield edges is the most precious asset that we've now got. So, you know, we're we're looking at uh, strategies like how do we develop the missing middle? Um, Mm, Yeah. I think we need more boldness. I think we need more diversity in how we use this scarce brownfields land that we're that now is getting the priority of recycling. Now, recycling doesn't mean a 20-storey building or more every time you do this. Uh, mm-hmm. We're talking about, you know, moving densities from perhaps 12 per hectare to possibly 60 per hectare, but you're still ending up with a really nice mix of buildings that are two, three, four, six, possibly some 10 storeys high. But you end up with a much greater diversity of urban form. You must make sure that you've got a much greater diversity of of, of um, type of apartments, studios, one bedrooms, two bedrooms, dual, dual keys, a whole range of things there. We've got to make sure that it's got an affordable housing component, especially yeah. for key work in its, in its midst. So as the government is now leading this conversation about how to fill in the missing middle, um, I'm I'm advocating, just personally at least, uh, that we end up with a bit more bold painting of that to make sure that um, that we do get the benefit from this opportunity. Because once we redevelop this brownfields land, mm. then we've effectively sterilised it for at least 50 years. Because it'll be yeah. 50 years before we come back and yeah. revisit it and say, oh, should we knock it all down and start again? Yeah. So I yeah. think we need to use this asset very, very carefully because the public has invested in this land while it's in individual and private hands, it's still benefited by the fact there's been a huge investment in transport, in hospitals and schools and those other sorts of infrastructure, particularly social infrastructure, that um, it it just can't be simply driven by uh, an owner of a piece of the puzzle. The other thing from a regulator's point of view is that and people should be aware of this, is that Greenfield's land, the subdivision is by way of Torrens title. So that means that once the subdivision has been completed, the roads and all of the other infrastructure are handed back to the council and they become publicly owned 
infrastructure so that if your road gets a crack in it or your pipe gets blocked on the outside your property, you ring the council or somebody, some other utility and they come and fix it. Mm-hmm. As we go back through these brownfill sites, you'll find that the most common subdivision form will be by community title. Now, that's a very legitimate form of subdivision, but what's important to note there is that it actually ends up with shared privately owned infrastructure. So it could have mm. primary water treatments, it could have a range of other shared complex infrastructure that suddenly sits underneath all of these dwellings. Now, if any of that were to break down or be inadequate, then it's not a case of ringing the council and saying, hey, our sewer system's blocked, because they're very likely to get an answer saying, well, tell someone who cares, because it's not a publicly owned asset. So it's one of the things that I'm weighing into at the moment to say is, well, how are we going to regulate the increasing presence of community title development in these more dense Uh, urban developments uh, because they require a completely different mindset to regulating Torrens title um, subdivisions. It's very interesting. And it's almost like there's more of a legacy opportunity in a way. Uh, You know, I keep thinking about the, um, was it that, what they call it, the generator or, oh God, I can't think of the term, in in Sydney Central Park complex, they, they basically generate their own power, don't they? So that's very much a, a much greater scope than what people would imagine, just you're building a block of apartments. Well, I think a good example will be um, micro power generation. Um, So, for example, you know, what's driven the way that public infrastructure in electricity supply has been over the last hundred years is that uh, we've we've made the power a long way away from where where it's consumed. And so that's driven a huge platform of wires and poles now that you can actually create quite substantial amounts of power using locally generated solar power and other other forms of power generation, um, you're actually creating direct current um, power sources as opposed to alternating current, which is required to bring the power from distant generators. So I can imagine that we're going to see in the next 10 years that the predominant uh, reticulation will be at low voltage, not high voltage. Um, and that's going to throw up some interesting challenges um, as we start to plan out some of these uh, future developments. So that's where the work I'm doing with the regulator is to say, look, we need to develop trustworthy buildings and trustworthy infrastructure. Mm. Um, Trustworthy has got to be a function of three characteristics in my view, and that is that it doesn't harm people physically in either the making of the buildings or the use of the buildings. It doesn't harm them economically and it doesn't hurt them emotionally. So they're the focuses that I'm bringing to the definition of trustworthy. But then what I'm putting to the regulatory team is to say, look, we've spent the last 20 years just simply putting band-aids on what we've done in the past. And an example of that is a continued imagination that most buildings will be made on the site where they where they happen. These days, there's more and more construction on-site going off-site. So some of it's going off-site in the state, some of it's going off-site interstate, and some of it's going off-site overseas. I've just run into a project at the moment that's got 180 bathroom pods in it that were made in Dubai. So I've had to get the regulator to think about the fact that we've got to start regulating long supply chains of stuff that are coming to buildings and not just simply imagine 
that all we need to do is to regulate what happens on the job site. So mm. we've, we've got them to start thinking about what are the future harms because it, it's no longer just appropriate to think about what are the existing or past harms. We have to actually take our blinkers off and imagine what are future harms. So an, an example of that might be <clears throat> the increased use of uh, artificial intelligence where buildings are becoming smarter and buildings start to make decisions on behalf of their occupants um, without very much human intervention. So you could imagine, mm -hmm. uh, for example, that um, you, you could have a um, one part of the infrastructure reacting to one sensor and another part of the infrastructure reacting to another sensor, and they could be pulling in different directions. Now, we need to really focus on the fact that you know we're going to have a world of intelligent buildings. By 2030, it'll be the norm in my prediction. So mm. we need to make sure that we, as a regulator, start looking forward to saying, what do we need to regulate going forward? Not just simply to continue imagining that all we'll be doing in 10 years from now is putting our fingers in the same old holes in the dike. <laughs> you mentioned trust a lot there, and it's been sort of a theme. I mean, the biggest trust you want is the consumer's to have the confidence to actually go and sign a contract for an off-the-plan apartment, let's say. Correct. Knowing that they're not going to have to then worry for two years about what's going to happen and is it going to be a product that they're happy with, even though intrinsically they're going to want to believe that it's been a good decision um, and it's a good building because they've invested everything they've got into it. Sure. And obviously the big players would be worried about that sort of consumer trust and they're not signing up and allowing them to sort of go and build these developments. Even though they've got the sites there, they're just worried they're going to get the pre-sales. I mean, how long is this lag going to take, do you think, when consumers are going to be able to go out and buy confidence? Let me just give you my three pieces of advice in response to that question. That'd be great. Because that's a great way to finish this, and that is this. I reckon that consumers spend more time investigating a purchase of a motor vehicle than they do an apartment. They do. <laughs> so you could be investigating something that's worth $35,000 and give it far more attention than you would if you were in, going to purchase something that was worth three quarters of a million dollars. Absolutely. Yes. I've got some simple rules. Simply, if a developer has been around for more than five years, then they're starting to value their brand. I believe that there are already more than enough of those types of developers. So first of all, if the developer who has their name on the brochure that you're considering buying apartment hasn't been in business for more than five years, think carefully. More importantly, make sure that the special purpose vehicle, because every project is developed in a special purpose vehicle, all the good guys use special purpose vehicles because that's the way that they can attract in investment to create those jobs. So there's nothing wrong with special purpose vehicles. Make sure that your special purpose vehicle is clearly attached to a visible branded developer who has been in business for more than five years. Please take that precaution. The second thing I would recommend is that you would ask those developers to show you buildings that they have built within the last five years so you can go and have a look at them and go and knock on a few doors or sit at the entrance to those buildings and ask a few people who live in them what the lived experience is like. Now, look, if we could get more people doing that, what we'd suddenly find is that those people who want to pop in and out have no brand, come and go, and, and don't have a, a, a palette of trustworthy buildings behind them, 
they'll soon find the going's getting a lot tougher. So I just need the consumers to help us during this transition period to actually just simply jump onto those simple rules and just help us row a few strokes while we make it very clear to those people that are not trustworthy, this is not a place for you. Yeah, I think the hard part is for the consumer to, there's a lot of work for them emotionally and physically and the consumers a lot of the time want to make the easy decision and there's a lot of pressure on them to actually sign a contract fast and they're going to miss out on that apartment. We've only got three left in the block, et cetera. And, and so there's that sort of scarcity and FOMO kicks in and they just go, well, she'll be right, mate, and let's just go for it. Especially when they're in a hot market when they've missed out on, you know, say going for established property. So I think it's a, it's a, you know, a good idea for consumers to go and do all this due diligence, but actually whether they're actually going to go and do it, I, I, I'd probably argue Look, not. You know, if you're going to spend three quarters of a million dollars and you're not going to do a bit of work before you spend it, then I'm sorry. Um, you've got to you, you you've got to then start to realise that you might be a bit responsible for your own decision. I'm mm. with you, David. <laughs> I, I I know. I mean, I keep using this car analogy. I have been shopping a car, and I've gone to three dealerships and looked at different car, the same car in different dealerships, etc. I can tell you that when a sale's on. There is no more pressure than a car salesman trying to you to say, you know, if you do this by a Sunday night, I'll guarantee you get $5,000 off your car and you think, oh, geez, I better lock that $5,000 yeah. down. And in fact, <laughs> you can go back next week and that $5,000 is still on the table. Yeah. So I'm just going to put it to you to say, if you feel that you're going to use that as your way out of the room to avoid any responsibility for your decision, then so be it. But please, consumers... $750,000 is a lot of money and please do a bit more heavy lifting than yeah. I've seen of some dumbos out there. <laughs> and I've got to tell you, there are some complete and utter dumbos out there. You can't help them. They come in whinging about a deal and you say, well, you know, look at that particular developer. He's got project after project that is simply unacceptable. Yeah. And you want to buy from that person? Well, if you want to do that in a burst of um, excitement, good luck with that. <laughs> yeah. Knock yourself out. So, so agree with you there, David. I know that you've got to wrap up. We both really appreciate you coming along, talking to us and, and you know, we're singing from the same hymn book on that one. Buyers have to take responsibility. And uh, we wanted to understand what changes are underfoot in the New South Wales construction space, uh, residential construction space. And so that, you know, consumers of or buyers of, of the plan and new apartments in the future can understand what to expect. We've never advocated for it, just so you know, but that's because one big reason is around the, the quality issues. So it's exciting and interesting to hear of the future and, and also the smart building side of things as well because obviously that is something that is is on the horizon so it's nice to see the you're working at spearheading changes that anticipate the future not not re, purely reactive so thank you so much for your time david what i'd like to just simply leave with consumers is a genuine understanding that i am their dog in the fight mm. but i can't boil the ocean and we'll chip <laughs> away at this and it's happening very quickly but I hope they can help me as we go through the next couple of years to make sure they end up with a better outcome. Way to go. Awesome. Thank you, David. Thank you. Well, we were going to ask David for a Dumbo and also going to give you a boot camp, but David managed to actually give us both. He's, the Dumbo <laughs> is really buyers not taking responsibility for their own decisions and, you know, we see that 
time and time again, not just in the new space, but certainly in the existing space as well, and certainly in a rising market when FOMO is driving decisions. And let's face it, that's what the elephant in the room is all about, isn't it? Looking at the ways in which our decision-making is influenced without our our knowledge half the time and not always in our best interests. And also he gave us the boot camp, which was looking at, you know, where can you start looking in terms of researching a developer before you go to buy off the plan or something that's brand new. And I think that, yes, looking at someone who's been in business five years is a really good start. The other thing I would look at and and what he was saying is ask for the examples of the buildings and go and talk to the, uh, to the residents, not just owners but tenants as well. And we've done that in the past with buildings that are fairly recent that we've been looking yeah. at buying into, not so much checking up on a developer for a new building. But the other thing I would say too is that you want to understand how they deal with fixes because there's always bits and pieces that need to be fixed once a building's finished. So that's one of the questions that you would definitely ask these people that live there is, well, you know, has there been anything that has gone wrong? And how has it been handled? How has it been dealt with? That's really telling. You know, how much do they back their product by coming back and fixing little things that that will always come up? And if they're only little, that's great. But how they came back and dealt with them is really the most important thing. I think the key thing is taking that personal responsibility. It is your biggest you know, potentially financial decision. You don't know that until five, 10 years down the line. And if you, you know, wanted to go through a bit of pain and you looked at what you could have done, say, five or ten years ago and where you are today and that compounding that, you know, over your lifetime, you, you'll start to see the standards is actually a massive decision. And if you decided not to buy that and you bought a different property, it could be in a different position. And so one thing I'm seeing a lot at the moment is clients buying extremely fast without no due diligence, no contract check, no building a pest, buying on busy roads, et cetera, because there's just so much FOMO out in the market and there's so much desperation and a lot of pain, et cetera. And so you've got to be really careful if you, if you, you know, due diligence, even on established property, you've got to be making sure that you're avoiding making any silly mistakes because they're extremely painful once you've signed that contract. Yeah. I think I've spoken in previous episodes about some of the examples I've seen recently and, and our clients are very well informed when they buy a property, but, you know, we've been competing with people who aren't and, yeah. and often don't buy it as a result, because those people who are not as well informed pay more money for it and one day they'll work it out. So it's like what's more painful, a little bit of FOMO now or really realising you actually bought yourself a lemon or bought yourself into a whole heap of problems. So, but, you know, human nature is as human nature does. Please join us for our next episode We're talking about the economy because, of course, no property discussion is complete without considering how we're connected locally, nationally and globally. We're joined by economist Carlos Cacho and we discuss the strength of our economy and the big surprise of how strong it actually is. We talk about the housing market and how sustainable that is. We're also looking at potential headwinds. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember... 
don't be a dumbo.